I'm delighted to welcome uh, Stephen O'Brien from the Maths Department in Limerick. So S Stephen set up the Maxi Industrial Maths Centre and uh, in Limerick and how long was that? Five, five years ago maybe? Something like that. Yeah. It's a good, good long while ago now and it's been Cheers. successful and there's now a good group of people doing industrial and applied maths there. And uh, so Stephen's around for today and for the rest of the afternoon. If, if people want to have a chat with him, we can grab him afterwards. But um, I think your talk's going to give us some of the experiences about the, mm. the uh, industrial maths in, in Limerick that you doing. Well, you objected when I said it might be very general, so it's, it's a bit of both, all right? Okay. There's a bit of shameless <laughs> self-publicity for the group, um, just in case people don't know what we do. And there's some technical stuff at the end. Um, so thanks, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> well, in 2006, we got quite a lot of money from Science Foundation Ireland, so we set up this, what's essentially a, an industrial mathematics group, and it's, it's sort of spread across several universities. It's mostly focused, though, in, in Limerick, really for the reason that we, um, we always had a large applied mathematics group there. Um, there's, only, there's only two or three pure mathematicians in actual fact. So we fitted well into the remit of, of, of Science Foundation Ireland when they decided to, uh, to fund mathematics. <coughs> um, and, well, there's a sort of almost an outreach component of this talk, because a lot of what I'm doing, or have been doing for the last few years, is involved outreach talking and talking in general about what we do. And I sometimes do ask the question is, is mathematical modelling really worthwhile? Of course, um, We've been pushing mathematical modelling for, 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 for years and years now. Um, in a sense, I know I'm speaking to the converted, talking to people here. In that sense, this part of the talk is maybe not appropriate. Um, <clears throat> but I do find some other groups actually think ma they, they don't take, take mathematical modelling particularly uh, seriously at all. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit just to give you some idea about the kinds of problems we work on. Um, there are some examples. Um, which I will sketch an outline and I'll talk about a few problems which I think are, are good examples of industrial mathematics that I've come across in my own experience. Um, oops. Well, this is the question I've sometimes put to groups, is mathematical worthwhile at all? Even some people in my own group regard mathematical modelling as a tool, really, a tool that they have fun with. Um, but my personal philosophy is it's, it's a useful tool. In fact, I think an awful lot of modern science is based on the concept of mathematical modelling. Again, I suspect that um, I'm preaching to the converted here, but I do see applied mathematicians and certainly industrial mathematicians as being scientists, um, which isn't necessarily the, the opinion of all mathematicians in this, in this country. Um, <clears throat> but what sort of opened my eyes to this actually was, was early on in the, in the early days of, of, of Maxi, of our, of our industrial mathematics group. Um, <clears throat> we had uh, John Hinch from Cambridge, who was very much completely of the Cambridge school. I think he was educated. All his education was in Cambridge. He's a sort of um, fluid mechanics is, is his original area, I think. But um, we were talking in a sort of general way about what the functions of a university was, and he certainly was of the opinion that universities are um, well, a repository of expertise, as he put it. His point was that if somebody from outside the university, particularly someone from industry, comes with a question that isn't particularly interesting from a scientific point of view, he would nevertheless feel obliged to look at that problem and help the people out. And it's, it's an attitude that, well, I haven't seen this, it's not a very prevalent attitude among mathematicians in Ireland, but it's, it's certainly one that, <coughs> um, that we would support in, in, in the group in Limerick and in Maxi in general. 
I don't know what people here think about that. But um, he also pointed out that, for example, when Stokes was at Cambridge, he sort of had an open door from the point of view of, of, of um, consulting. You know, anybody could come along and ask him any type of scientific or mathematical question, and he was, he was willing to, to, to help out. And that's what we've been trying to do, as I say, with, with, um, in, in, in Maxi. In particular, we actually have industrial people coming and knocking on our door and saying, we do this, this, and this, and it goes wrong, can you help out? And uh, that, that, that's one of our essential activities for the last five or six years. Um, well, the next thing there, there's a, there's a statement here from a guy called Bernard Bozami, which is a bit controversial. But I found this recently. It's actually it's in one of these bulletins of the Irish Mathematical Society. And <coughs> the point is this guy, Bozami, this guy was a pure mathematician in, in Paris. So he was educated in analysis of some sort. I can't remember what it was exactly. I think it was functional analysis. He worked as, as um, an academic for a number of years. <coughs> and then he decided to move, to move out of academia and set up his own mathematical consultancy. And the consultancy was to help industrial partners, industrial people in general. And he found that his basic education was more or less useless. So he's sort of, he's completely changed color in a sense. And he now believes that the whole mathematical education should be, should be done in a different way. And one of the things that jumps out at me from that particular piece there is this bit where he says, that, well, he says, mathematicians tend to bring solutions which nobody understands to questions nobody asked. And <coughs> I sort of know what he means. Um, <coughs> and again, that's the sort of thing that we are trying not to do in the context of Maxi. And I suspect as well that that is the philosophy here in the, in the Hamilton Institute. In any case, we've set up this sort of um, industrial mathematics group. Again, in an Irish context, it's sort of interesting that nothing, no industrial mathematics has existed really in this country, even though it started in, in, in Oxford in the late 1960s. And for some reason, it completely, this, this activity has com completely bypassed us in Ireland, possibly because there was a, a strong tradition here in pure mathematics and mathematical physics, in the sense of theoretical physics. <coughs> but I still think it's remarkable it's taken this long for us to catch up. Um, <clears throat> and then it begs the question, well, should we be genuinely te be teaching students how to model, or should we be um, carrying on with the traditional mathematical type of education here? So that's sort of a, an open question, perhaps. Um, and one thing, well, this is a sort of a, a naive diagram, of course, that one uses when one is giving outreach talks. But one point I would make about it, of course, is <coughs> um, so we do like to start with real-world problems and set up a, set up a mathematical module, model and try and solve it. But it's, it's sort of my opinion that the right-hand side here is looked after in all the universities here. This is really what we teach students. We actually start off usually with the model and we solve the problem and that's the end of everything. And in fact, the front end, the business of actually turning something real into a mathematical model, which in practice is possibly the biggest difficulty or the largest part of genuine mathematical modeling, this is completely neglected here. And also the bit at the end is neglected. Well, if you don't have a front end on it, if you don't have a real problem that you're trying to model, you can't really interpret your solution to see if it means anything real in the context of the real world problem. So what I'm talking about, whether we should be teaching mathematical modeling um, building up ma mathematical modeling activities in this country. This is the sort of thing I'm, I'm, I'm referring to. I mean, I think our basic mathematical education is very good, but perhaps there's a bit that's being left out. 
Anyway, enough of the preaching. Um, <coughs> I'm just going to give a quick summary of, of problems that have sort of passed through our hands in the last few years. And this is just with the intention of, of, of giving a flavor of what we do. Now, I'm sort of, um, I will be biased towards the, the continuous side of things. We also have network and applied stat statistics interests. And I know you're quite familiar with James Leeson, for example, here. But I'm going to talk about, more about the continuous types of problems and how they arise. And because we have a bit of a reputation now, <coughs> sorry, we do get people coming to us basically with nice problems. This is someone who came to us from Munich, in, actually in, in geophysics, I think it was. And they're investigating the properties of magma, basically. And they had these, these nice experiments. They actually had a very spectacular film of this, where they took magma. This, this is a sample of magma here. It's put under pressure, and it's squeezed. Then they released the pressure, and they found the whole thing explodes upwards. And, you know, <clears throat> of course, this isn't an industrial problem, but it's a very nice scientific problem. And I should say as well that we don't just do industrial problems. We'll do anything that we, think, that we find scientifically interesting. But the emphasis is almost always on the science rather than just on the uh, mathematics. But anyway, they showed, what's the woman's name? Betty Show is her name from, from Munich. She actually showed us these, these uh, films of these experiments, which are really very spectacular. And the question really was, can you tell us what's going on? You know, can you work out what's going on here? And as a subgroup of our people, there's about three people had to go off this, they actually had a, a working model within about three months. Well, I won't go into the details of this, but on the left-hand side, they're actually experimental results. These are actually the top and bottoms of, the, of these cracks, the time history of the, of the tops and bottoms of these cracks. You see, you're getting these periodic or what look like periodic striations appear, appearing here. And that was one of the fundamental questions. Where, how do they come about? Can we predict, um, <clears throat> for example, the, the wavelength, if you like? Um, and the group were, was able to do this. As I say, on the left-hand side here is experimental results, and on the right-hand side is, is, is the model they developed. And you can see, well, at least qualitatively, it's, it's pretty good. This is ongoing work, of course. And it's, as I say, it's just to give a flavor for the sort of thing we do. And I put this one on, this problem on as well, because I never thought we'd be involved in problems like this. I mean, this, is, this was a company coming to us, and basically what they were doing was pumping milk from one tank into another tank. And in pumping the milk from, from into the second tank, they were entraining air. So the volume in the second tank didn't correspond to the volume in the first tank, and this difference in, in volume was causing the problems from a calibration point of view. They were using this, if you like, the volume in the second tank to measure how much milk they actually had. And <coughs> it's a problem that still surprises me. This is actually a group of our postdocs and postgrads who went and actually had a look at the equipment. And um, there was a, a model was actually developed for this, which I'm not even allowed to talk about. But the point about the model, and it was to do, of course, with the entrainment of air in the milk as it's been pumped from one tank into another. And uh, as a result, the, this company actually has, has um, redesigned its, its, its pumping system on foot of, of what came out of this, this modeling uh, problem here. And I should say, actually, funnily enough, while well, Ireland's a very small country, where this problem actually came from was Gary Maguire, who is, I guess, known here. Um, so Gary rang me up one day, and he said his uncle worked for this company, and they had a problem, and would we have a look? And it followed on from there. So, um, well, it's, it's, it's at one end of the spectrum. It's a very practical problem, although the, the model is actually quite neat as well, I have to say. Um, <clears throat> and we've also done quite a bit of work on, on Guinness bubbles. In fact, I think it was our f 
first ever study group. I should say something about study groups now when I have a captive audience. So we have these study groups with, with industry once a year, and these are, these are week-long problem-solving sessions where we, have, we bring along about six to eight problems from industry, and people break up into groups and work on the particular problem they'd like to, you know, they find interesting or which fits their area of specialization. And I really would encourage people from here to attend. Um, we really need expertise, um, people with some sort of applied mathematics background who can work on real problems, perhaps a little bit of physics as well, does tend to help. We find in general that there are our study groups of industry, and I should say that these are a worldwide activity now. They've only started in Ireland in the last few years, and frankly they're fairly poorly attended by Irish people or by people working in Ireland. We get huge support from Britain and elsewhere in the world, but I suspect a lot of Irish people are a, are a little bit, um, even a little bit afraid of the activity. But I really think they're, they're fun, they're very interesting, um, and unlike a conference, you really get to do something during the week. So we have one at the end of June, and you'll find it on our website, um, and hopefully some of you will consider attending. Um, <coughs> but at our first study group, we actually... Um, Diageo came along, Guinness came along, and we ended up working on quite a lot of, well, on problems to do with the initiation of bubbles in Guinness, and also the movement of the bubbles in Guinness. Um, <clears throat> and it's an example of an everyday phenomenon, um, which, is, uh, <coughs> which has um, some quite, quite nice mathematical models associated with it. This particular, I mean, well, everybody has seen this phenomenon here of, of uh, when a pint of Guinness is settling, you see these black lines moving downwards, okay? And in actual fact, these black lines are very similar to roll waves. I guess everybody here has seen a roll wave. A roll wave, you'll see a road, roll wave on, on a roadway after heavy rainfall, provided the roadway is, is steep enough, or technically as long as the fruit number is large enough. Um, as long as the water is flowing quickly enough, instead of getting a nice smooth flow, you'll always get these waves forming. And this, this phenomenon is very well understood. Roll waves have been understood for about, I think, 50 years. But it turns out <coughs> that the, this phenomenon in Guinness um, is closely related to the, the, the roll wave phenomenon. The difference here, of course, is if you're trying to solve the problem of... Okay, of um, of, the, of water flowing on a roadway, you're just dealing with a single phase of water. Whereas in Guinness, actually, it's, this is technically a two-phase flow. It consists, you can think of Guinness as consisting of a black liquid and nitrogen bubbles. So they are two phases. So the, the mathematics is a bit more complicated, but the essential patterns are very similar. Um, if you can solve one problem, you can more or less solve the other. And, I mean, I never thought I'd have my name on a paper with the word Guinness in the title, but we did publish this in the in the physics of fluids, and I can't resist putting it up, roll waves in Guinness. But I, mathematically, it's actually quite a nice problem, and it has led to a lot of collaboration between us and Diageo. And in fact, one of our, well, originally a postdoc, a research fellow in Maxi, who's now actually um, got a lectureship um, in Maxi, has gone on to do quite a bit of work on, on Guinness for, for Diageo and, and some other brewing companies, in actual fact. Um, <coughs> but enough about that. Um, and we've also, one of, our, one of our great customers, in a sense, has been analog devices in, in Limerick. We've got an extensive uh, research facility, and they tend to come along every now and again with very nice problems. Again, th this is actually a problem from our first study group, which um, it's still, actually, there's still some, <coughs> some work going on on this problem. But basically, um, 
basically the issue here is that this is actually this is um, <coughs> um, a fuse in an integrated circuit, and there are millions of these, perhaps in, in a circuit. So you can so you can think of a, of, a, uh, of a chip as consisting of of millions of these fuses, and the idea is to blow the fuses in a certain pattern in order to create a certain functionality in the chip. And what analog were finding is, well, it turned out they had no idea really about the. How, about the, the mechanism by which these fuses were being blown. What I mean by that is they were passing a current. Battery in this is gone, isn't it? It's there some of the time. They were passing a current um, through the fuse, and that was to blow the fuse. But under certain circumstances, they were actually finding a week or two later that some of the fuses actually rehealed. Okay? So, uh, and it turned out, as I say, it's quite a complicated physical ph phenomenon when this thing starts blowing because the, this material here actually melts and starts to flow, and <laughs> there's some vaporization as well occurring, and that's why you get that void occurring on the right-hand side. So it's actually quite a complicated physical system, which was, well, roughly speaking, was more or less worked out at the first study group. And again, it's, I think it's a nice example of the sorts of physical problems that we deal with. And the one point I'm trying to get across here is we do get people coming along. They don't have a mathematical problem at all. They have a problem. And the question is, can you help us with this? And that's the, the front-end bit, the turning a real problem into a mathematical model that we believe we're quite, we're quite strong and have built up quite a lot of expertise in at this point. Anyway, I'll talk about a couple of problems now in a bit more detail. <coughs> so this is a, a problem that actually came from... Um, it's from a surgeon in Limerick, actually, um, to do with, well, smart bandages, as they're, as they're called. So the idea here is uh, <coughs> you have a bandage on your arm, and what they wanted, or what he wanted to have, is some sort of sensor underneath the bandage in order to be able to, 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 to gauge the pressure that the bandage was exerting on the arm. Okay? So, obviously, that's the sensor here in the center. This isn't an arm. This is, this is a, just a, a cylinder, a metal cylinder. Okay? Um, <coughs> but of course, the sensor here, the problem with putting the sensor in is it actually interferes, if you like, with the bandage itself, okay? And interfering with the, with the, sh with the configuration of the bandage, it actually changes the pressure that the bandage exerts on the arm. So what they wanted, or what his question was, is, is it possible to work this out in a quantitative way? Can we work out what the change, for example, in the pressure is as a result of having this, this, uh, this, this sensor under the bandage? Uh, um, what that change happens to be. Um, <coughs> and it turns out you can do quite a lot with this problem. Um, <coughs> it's really laid out in steps here. So, in fact, uh, so this is a problem I worked on myself, actually. And, well, I really did it in, in baby steps. I started off with just a two-dimensional model. So this is supposed to be an infinitely long arm, if you like, coming out of the plane. You've got your sensor up on top there. Um, I will solve the real problem in the end, all right? Was, as I say, it was just a stepping stone. And then you've got, so the bandage is going, <coughs> I don't have the bandage drawing it, but the bandage, of course, would be going around the sensor there and around the, and, and, and round, round the limb, if you like. And, <coughs> well, they call it hammocking, of course, because you see the sensor here, well, it causes the bandage to lift off the arm here, and this is the, the hammocking region, as they call it. And, <coughs> well, that's what they're interested in, the shape of the, uh, of the, 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 um, of the stretch bandage in this region and, and where, where it actually lifts off from the arm, that sort of thing. But, of course, the, the advantage of, of describing this with a two-dimensional model like this um, 
is that, well, the mathematics becomes very simple, but in fact the fundamental balances that arise here are the same as the balances that arise in the full problem. You can more or less write down um, a closed form solution to this particular problem. Um, <clears throat> essentially all you have to do is, you see, the, 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 the equation that defines the, um, uh, the configuration of the bandage on the arm and across the sensor there, it just requires the, the curvature, the net curvature to be zero. Okay? And that ends up just being your, your, your governing differential equation. Um, <coughs> this is done in polar coordinates, of course. But the curvature is that term there in the first line. I don't have another of these now. Um, <coughs> well, the curvature in the first line, that must be equal to zero. So you just end up here having to solve um, a second order ordinary differential equation. And the point about this, well, the reason this was sort of interesting to me originally, because it turns out actually being a free boundary problem. And I've sort of um, I've worked on a lot of free boundary problems in the past, particularly in the context of industrial problems. And this problem, well, it's sort of associated with the, with the shapes of, of, of um, drops and soap bubbles and that sort of thing. Um, but the point is, the reason it's a free boundary problem is, of course, you don't know where the, you don't know where the bandage, so the bandage is stretched around the arm and around the sensor there. You don't know where the bandage actually contacts the arm, having been lifted off by the sensor. Um, <coughs> so you have a second order equation, but of course you have, a, you have an extra boundary condition. Um, you, don't, um, <coughs> you don't know where the bandage comes into contact with the, with the with the arm, with the limb, but you know that it must come in smoothly. That gives you a second boundary condition. This thing beta here is the unknown angle, actually. Um, and as I say, the extra boundary condition is used to fix beta here. And you can actually write down more or less a closed form solution here. Now, well, I should say there's going to be an approximation involved here because the original equation is, 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 is highly nonlinear. But in fact, <coughs> If you non-dimensionalize this problem correctly, really all you're doing is you're looking for a small perturbation of the banded shape from, from, a from, from a perfectly circular shape, if you like. Um, in particular because, and this is based on real parameter values, in particular because the height of the sensor H there is much smaller than the radius of the, um, of the arm, typically. Um, so H over R ends up functioning as a, as a small parameter and one, 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 one can scale this and obtain um, a perturbation solution of the problem. And in the part, well, so the equation becomes much simpler, except the, the, the only snag, I guess, here is that um, there is a boundary layer, not too surprisingly, there's a boundary layer in the immediate vic vicinity of the sensor where you have to rescale. But once you do that, in fact, you get a well-balanced differential equation, which is completely trivial here. Um, it just, it's just D2V d theta squared is equal to 1. That basically solves the problem for you, provided, well, you've got this unknown beta quantity that you have to work out, but you have two extra boundary conditions, and you can actually write down a closed-form solution. It's down at the bottom there. Okay? Um, <clears throat> now, in fact, in a sense, this is the wrong coordinate system in which to do this problem, in the sense that if you were to do it in Cartesians, well, uh, let me put up this, this, this figure first. This is just a comparison of the asymptotic solution and the exact numerical solution, if you like. Okay, it's pretty easy to solve this, this ODE numerically. And you can see that the, uh, the asymptotic solution is working quite nicely. Um, and the point is when you get to the full 
three-dimensional asymmetric problem, um, it's, you, you, it's, it, the, the solving the full problem uh, numerically is quite difficult, whereas the simplified version, exploiting the smallness of this parameter, epsilon, um, makes, makes for a linear problem in actual fact. <coughs> but of course, if one used a sort of an engineering approach, if you think about it, this problem is pretty trivial, because all you're doing, <coughs> you're looking for a zero curvature solution which links the sensor here and comes in tangentially to the circle here. So in fact, this is a sort of, this is a problem one could ask at leaving cert, perhaps in the context of this new pro project maths, okay? Um, <coughs> because it's just, it's an exercise in geometry. I suspect, in fact, most kids at leaving cert level could, could solve that problem and work out where, the, where that straight line hits the, hits the, um, hits the cylinder. And you can, so you can write down the solutions here pretty quickly and you can just check that, that they agree with the, with the previous uh, solution, which as I say in some sense is, uses the, the, the wrong coordinate system, but for, but for a good reason, that we want to use um, <coughs> that coordinate system later on. And the next thing I did in looking at this problem actually is, I still haven't got quite to a, to a limb, so I started off with an infinite arm. Now in fact what I'm looking at is, is um, a bandage on a ball. This is really a tin can on top of a ball. Okay, so my sensor here is a, is a can of beans, if you like, a small can of beans on top of this ball. And I'm trying to find the zero curvature solution again. Um, <coughs> in this case, I'm, I'm using um, spherical polars. Uh, the expression for the curvature, the curvature must be still zero. I'd like to find this configuration of the, of the boundary. And you get this nonlinear equation at the bottom for f. F essentially is the shape of that, of that free surface. Um, <clears throat> but the basic structure is very similar to what I had up here before. Um, <laughs> you have three boundary conditions here. You don't know what beta is, um, but the extra boundary condition fixes beta, if you like. That's why it's really a free boundary condition, uh, or a free boundary problem. And again, you have to rescale this problem in the vicinity of, of the sensor, but I won't go into the details of this. You can just about write down a closed form solution for this problem. Um, it's actually in, in terms of this, this Lambert W function. Um, I think it's always a giveaway when you see people using this in talks, because it means they probably used Maple or, or, or Mathematica, one of these things, and Maple pops, pops out this, this, this function quite easily. But it's, so it's, the Lambert function is just one of the solutions of this, of this nonlinear equation there at the bottom right hand corner. It's, it, defines a, well, it defines one of the branches of this function, w of x. In any case, um, <coughs> again, you can compare the solutions with the numerical solutions. That's what f looks like. It just gives you confidence that what you're doing here is sensible. And again, one can use an, an engineering approach and model this whole thing in Cartesian coordinates. So you're just solving Laplace's equation in the slope, a small slope approximation for the curvature. And <coughs> the, the appropriate solution is this. Um, this log R solution here. And again, it's sort of a, this solution again is trivial. It's um, sort of geometric solution, but you can use it just to compare it with the solution I just found. And again, it all does check out quite nicely. So finally, one moves on to the real problem. <laughs> so the, just to remind ourselves, so there's the real problem. There's a, a cylindrical arm here, a disc. And there's the bandage with the, with the little sensor underneath it. Um, and we'd like to find out what the shape of this, this well, what the shape of this bandage is in, the, in, in this, this disturbed region, if you like. So you can model the whole thing in cylindrical polars. Again, I think having done, especially the, the first problem, the one-dimensional problem, it's sort of obvious how to proceed at this point. 
It's all a little bit more complicated and you're now dealing with a partial differential equation rather than an ordinary differential equation. But it has the same basic structure. Again, you've got one extra boundary condition. One of the boundary conditions is to do with the fact that the, the, ba the bandage touches the arm and the other just says that it, come, that it comes in smoothly. And you have to use that extra condition again. <coughs> From a numerical point of view, of course, you're going um, <coughs> to have to solve this equation or a, a simplification of this equation numerically. And you'll use the extra boundary condition um, as, as a condition about which you can iterate to find the, the location of the free boundary. But before you do that, same procedure as before. You can simplify the differential equation quite a lot by exploiting the existence of that small parameter, epsilon. Um, there is a boundary layer again in the vicinity of the, um, uh, of the sensor. And in fact, the final equation you come up with, well, <laughs> you can actually turn this directly into a Laplace equation if you want. It's just this equation in the middle here. It's gone again. Um, <coughs> um, and as I say, we've got one extra boundary condition. But the whole thing is, is quite easy to solve numerically. Um, <coughs> there's nothing particularly interesting about it, as I say. Um, I, can't, I can't actually remember which one. So when you're solving this numerically, you, gotta, you use one of the boundary conditions as your boundary condition, and you iterate about the other one. And I actually can't remember which one I used here, or if, or if, if both worked. But in any case, it's, it's, it's not particularly difficult to do that. As I said, you can actually turn this in straight into a Laplace problem directly with that substitution up on top, or you can leave it as it stands. So in terms of this, this function V is associated with the original function U, which is the actual banded shape. This is a picture of V you get from your numerical solution down at the bottom. Or if I, if I draw that perhaps in, 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 in terms of U, it looks a bit more convincing. So the numerical computation is on the right-hand side there. And the nice thing about this is once, so once this guy, this, this surgeon who was asked, asked us to look at this problem saw this, he said, oh, you've solved the problem. As it turned out that MATLAB had, had drawn the picture in the same color. It was a complete coincidence as his original picture. So he was immediately convinced by this, by this numerical computation on the right-hand side. <coughs> but of course, we did check this a little bit more carefully. Um, <coughs> that is the basic types of pictures we got. And we ended up actually delivering a little bit of software to him, right, which he can use if he decides to change the size of the sensors. If he wants to in investigate what the, <coughs> what the effect of varying the size of the sensor is, he can run his, his program. One of the other things, <coughs> well, one of the natural things to then compute, well, it's one of the basic questions, was how does the force on the sensor change? Um, when you put the sensor under the bandage, you actually end up increasing the net force on, on, the, uh, on the cylinder. So the... the um, <coughs> There was actually a physicist involved with this problem as well, and they, they tended to talk in terms of a magnification factor. Um, <coughs> and for example, so for this, this is back to the one-dimensional problem. Well, the reason I've gone back to the one-dimensional problem is you can write down the solution in a couple of lines, okay? You can just compute, you can, for, for example, just compute the net, the forces acting on the, across the sensor, <coughs> across the piece of membrane that's in touch with the sensor up at the top there. Unfortunately, I can't get this thing to work. Um, <clears throat> and in computing that, you can work out how much the net force on the, on the cylinder uh, increases, and you find that you get this, uh, <coughs> well, the, the final increase factor is, is, this, is this thing here. C is a known parameter. C is actually associated with the, with the ratio of the height of the sensor. Uh, <coughs> sorry, this is the width of the sensor, the height of the sensor, and that's the radius of the sensor. So it's just a known order one parameter as far as I'm concerned here. 
So you can explicitly work out um, how, the, how, the, how the force on the cylinder increases here. Um, well, some of the computations are done there. It's, it's a little bit more complicated to do this, of course, in the three-dimensional case, so it actually has to be done numerically as part of solving your free boundary problem. <coughs> but what, one thing I do, I do remember about doing this is for the only time in my life I used the triple scalar product. I remember coming across the triple scalar product as an undergraduate and saying, I wonder will I ever use that? Well, this is the only time I've ever used it. Um, <coughs> but on the right-hand side here, we've actually got a comparison between, this is an experimental, experimentally measured, well, exper experimental measure, measurements of this increase factor, um, as, as my physics colleague liked to call this, and actually what, 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 the, what this model actually predicts, though I think it's pretty impressive. Um, <coughs> the model works extremely well. Interesting enough, I was giving this talk, I think, to, to a mixed group, I think it was in Galway, um, and one of the pure mathematicians said, well, what's wrong here? Why is it going, you know, why is it so badly wrong? And I was thinking, these are just spectacular results, you know. I mean, from a practical point of view, <coughs> certainly if you talk to engineers, if you can get a model working to within 10 or 15% of reality, that's pretty good. Um, but this, as I say, this, this guy was, was worried about the little, little problem in the graph down here, which could be down to experimental error or anything like that. <coughs> And, well, there are a number of outcomes there, but as maybe from the point of view of the customer, if I'm treating the surgeon as a customer here, may, maybe the most important outcome is that he gets a piece of software, which I think I've said there somewhere at the very top. Okay, from our point of view, we like to solve the problem and we like to write a paper about it. Um, but from his point of view, getting this piece of software um, that, he can, that, that he can use to, to play around with and inform his experimental work, uh, that would be his, his main outcome. I mean, and there's actually more work to be done on this, but I'm not going to talk about that. Um, <clears throat> I'll just jump on and talk about this problem. This also came from a study group. Um, of course, Waterford Crystal went broke after it came to our study group. Um, I think it still exists in some form or, or other, but they actually came to, a, I think it was one of our very first study groups. Um, and the problem they came with, well, everybody is familiar with Waterford Crystal, so what they came with, well, they came actually with five or six different problems, but this particular problem, it's, it's concerned with the etching of glass here. So the idea is they've just cut this pattern in the glass to create this nice water crystal, but after, after they've cut the pattern in the glass, the glass is sort of cloudy, right, and opaque, and the reason is because there's lots of debris there. So they've cut their little channels, they've cut their patterns, but there's lots of little bits and pieces left there, um, still attached to the glass. And in order to get rid of that, what they have to do is they've got to douse this in, in acid. Um, <coughs> and what that does is pick off the, the extra loose bits at the surface and creates the finished product. Well, these are not great overheads, but the stuff on the, on the, on the right there is polished. In fact, that's the, the one on the left is actually a polished glass as well. I should, have, I should really have one of, one of, the, one of the, uh, the, the dirtier pictures. But in any case, what you're doing here is you're taking one of the, the piece of glass that's just been um, um, cut, if you like. Um, it's opaque. You want to get rid of the excess lumps of, 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 of um, material on the glass in order to, to, to make your nice clear crystal. And what they've been doing for years is they've actually been, been washing this, these glasses in a combination of these two acids. And um, HF in particular is a very, very nasty acid if you talk to these people. 
um, this kind of thing you, you I mean, this, I think it, it, it literally dissolves your bones sort of thing, you know, so you, you really have to be very careful working with this and it's all done in a, in a, in a very closed off environment. Um, but it turns out that it is necessary to use two types of acid here. So the, so the picture you have here is you've just cut a groove in glass and there's little lumps of chemical, if you like, still hanging on, right, after the cutting process. You want to pull all of these off, but the glass is fairly complicated from, from, from a chemical point of view. So, well, what I should say is, okay, so you, first of all, they douse the thing in, in, in acids and then they wash off um, <clears throat> the residue in water. But the interesting thing are some of these chemical reactions. So the crystal glass, there's, there's at least three oxides in it, lead oxide, potassium oxide, and, and silica. And the two acids are necessary to get rid of, of this combination. Okay? And the, the particular chemical reactions that occur are listed at the bottom here. Um, <coughs> but you'll see, for example, that silica, SiO2, it's etched by, the, by, by HF, but it's not etched by the sulfuric acid. Okay? Um, <clears throat> and the sort of question that evolved in the course of the study group is, well, if you wanted to work out the etching rates of these acids, how quickly these acids, if you knew how fast sulfuric acid etched, and you, and you knew how f f uh, fast the, the hydrofluoric um, acid uh, etched, how do you combine the two of these, given that hydrofluoric acid doesn't work on all the chemicals, all right? Sulfuric acid doesn't work on, 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 on all three chemicals. Is it possible to work out a net etching rate? Um, and in fact, during, in the course of the study group, this, this, um, this conundrum became known as the Dave Tucker conundrum. He's a, he's a colleague of mine. He's just, he's just retired, actually. And he, gave, he sort of asked this question initially. How does one deal with situations like this when you've got this, this combination of acids which can etch at different rates? How do you work out the, the overall etch rate? If, if at all. And I mean, the other kind of point he made was that <coughs> um, the reason you can store sulfuric acid, for example, in, in, in a glass container is precisely because of these reactions. Apparently, what happens is the sulfuric acid, it can, it can eat away at some of the chemicals, but in this case, it can't eat away at the silica. Okay? So some of the, eventually you're going to come to a surface that consists only of, of, of silica molecules, and at that point, if you like, the, the etching of the sulfuric acid in the glass container will stop, and apparently this is what goes on every time you put, put sulfuric acid into a glass container. So we took upon us ourselves the task of, of trying to model this phenomenon. Um, there's a fair bit known about etching, acid etching of, of these surfaces, um, you could write down equations for the evolution. So if you've got a surface that's given, given by some, well, this is just written in Cartesian coordinates here. It sort of depends on, on the particular problem you're looking at. Um, but this first equation here is, is a well-known surface evolution equation. This is really, this is really the, uh, the, uh, the kinematic free surface boundary condition for, for a moving fluid, if you want to think of it that, that way. This, this equation at the top here is really the, the, the convective derivative of Z minus S, okay? Um, and if you compute that out, you come out with this quantity here where, where that thing VP there is actually the nor the, the assumed to be the normal velocity, the velocity at which the surface, in this case, is being etched, or if it was a free liquid surface, it would be the normal velocity of, of that free liquid surface um, as it was moving. <coughs> And 
um, although I won't be looking at it here. What we are interested in doing here actually is working out what that thing VP is. What is the normal um, surface rate of etching if you've got more than one acid and the different acids etch at different rates? How do you actually sum up the different, uh, the different effects, if you like? But as a matter of interest, it's interesting when you start studying the, lit the literature in these problems. Um, <clears throat> again, there, is, there, there are no very advanced models for, for, for this, for this uh, chemical etching. But one hypothesis actually is that this velocity here, this normal velocity VP, depends on the local curvature, right, which of course is associated with the energy of the surface. And the reason that's sort of attractive from a mathematical point of view <laughs> is that if you then, if this thing here is, if, if VP is any, any sort of reasonable function of the curvature, you actually end up with this, this equation at the top, which is really hyperbolic, it turns into a, in, into a parabolic equation. And the hypothesis is that the diffusive effects is what smooth your surface, okay? Um, <clears throat> but as I say, I'm not going to go into that here. What we're going to do here, as I say, is try and work out actually what VP is from, from a molecular point of view, if you like. And the point is that if you know what the, the normal rate of etching is, assuming that etching acts completely normally, if I start off with a surface like this, well, you, see, you can see what's going to happen. If, if the etching rate is occurring normally, this <coughs> you're going to get an evolution like this going on. So what it means in a sort of, um, in, a, in, a, in a qualitative way, is a large feature like this is gradually going to become thinner and then disappear completely, okay? Um, <coughs> whereas... Um, a feature like this is actually going to become, it's going to become wider and deeper. Anyway, well, I've talked a little bit about the Tucker paradox or the Tucker conundrum. It's this idea that if you have these two acids working, how can you possibly sum, sum their effects together to get an average etching rate? So we actually wrote down quite a simple model. And this is at a molecular level. So the idea here is I've got, well, I've got uh, two types of molecules, red ones and blue ones, if you like, okay? In the original, of course, the original glass, there are three types of, um, of molecules, but this is just to illustrate what's going on. And <coughs> um, so I started off here actually with a flat surface. Um, in this particular example, actually, so you can think of red here actually as being silica, which isn't, et which isn't etched by the acid. The blue, the blue molecule is etched by the acid. And what you'd expect in this particular case is after a while, so if I, st if I, <coughs> if I started with a, a flat molecular surface at the beginning, after a while you'd expect, you'd expect that uh, <coughs> the blue molecules would get, would get removed. The reds will, whenever you find a red molecule, the etching process stops, if you like, along that particular channel. And that's going to be a feature of the, of the model I'm going to write down. Um, so this model, <laughs> basically what you do in this model is you assume, I'm going to call it psi jn, right? j is going to correspond to the species. So here I've just two species, the red and the blue, or the silic and the lead oxide, for example. So j corresponds to the species, and n is the fraction of exposed surface, sorry, Psi Jn is the fraction of exposed surface of the species J at any particular level N. So N is really distance into the crystal. And we've assumed here that glass is a crystal, which it isn't, okay? But in an average way, this, this is probably a reasonable way to start, okay? Um, <coughs> so N, as I say, is distance into the crystal. J is, is, the, is the chemical, the particular chemical. 
particular type of molecule, if you like. And of course, I'm assuming that I know, I know exactly what the fraction of each species is in the overall glass at the beginning. So Fj is known for each species. I know exactly how the, the glass is made up. And on that basis, um, one can write down quite a simple, um, I'll just speed up here a little bit, one can write down quite a simple set of, of ordinary differential equations for these psi psi jn's, okay? The first equation is just the, the equation that corresponds to the first row. Remember the, the index there, <laughs> zero corresponds to depth into the crystal, so that's the first row at the top. And the first equation is slightly different from the other equations because it's at the very top, of course. And all you're doing here, as you etch away molecules, um, you've got two terms. So these are, these are already differential equations. This is d, d psi by dt on the left-hand side of each of these equations. And as you, as, you, as you knock away, as you etch away molecules, you're exposing new sites, and you've got to allow for that with this term here. Um, <coughs> so this term here corresponds to the removal of exposed sites, and the second term on the right-hand side is associated with the creation of new sites, okay? And that's why there's an Fj in there, because Fj is the fraction of molecules of type J that occur after you, after you etch away at any particular level. And these equations, well, <coughs> are really quite simple. These are just linear equations. I, I should say that, so Fj are the fraction, the fraction of molecules of type J, and Aj is, is the etching rate for the molecule J, okay? So these are just linear equations, okay? Of course, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of these equations, in actual fact, if you're, um, <coughs> if you're trying to etch in, in, into, into a, a layer of glass. But because they're linear equations, they're pretty easily, easy to solve. Um, so let, let me just give you some examples of what happens when you solve these. These are just numerical solutions, actually. And the sorts of pictures you get, <coughs> you see these are the fractions of exposed red molecules, the fractions of exposed blue molecules at some later time, and that's the sum of the two, the sum of, all, of, 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 of both fractions. So what you're actually getting, apparently, is a front that is propagating into the crystal, and as it propagates into the crystal, you notice that it's also spreading out. Okay, it's diffusing. Now, as I say, these are, these are purely numerical solutions, so the question is, can you do a bit better than that? And because of the linearity, of course, uh, these equations um, <coughs> are amenable to a Laplace transform, and you can make quite a lot of progress with this. In fact, it was, one, it was one of our postdocs tidied up all of this in the end. This had been lying around for quite, quite a while. The point was, you can, you can apply your Laplace transform, solve the equations. It's, it's, <coughs> it's difficult to, um, to, um, to invert the, uh, the transform at the end in the general case. But you see, what you're really interested in is the situation after long times, in some sense. You really want a type of a long time solution. And because the numerics, as I say, the numerics that we looked at a moment ago, they suggest that you've basically got propagation and diffusion going on. You've got this front moving into the crystal and spreading out, apparently, as it moves. You could make an ansatz of this type. This would be your, your propagation bit, this would be your diffusion bit, and it turns out that this works very nicely. If you plug it into the equation, you can actually pull out a very nice approximate solution. Um, <coughs> and you get one simple result here. The simple result here is that the average propagation rate is made up by this quantity here, and I'll remind you, Fs, 
The FKs or the FJs as they were originally are the fractions of the type of, of molecule J that's in the glass at the beginning. And the AJs or the AKs here, <coughs> these, are the, the, these are the etching rates of that particular glass. So in fact you get this nice, well, simple result that apparently the average etching rate is given by this quantity here. As I say, this is a long time solution. It's also spreading out, and that's contained in this term up here. But rather than go into the details of that, I'll just show you the comparison now between this, this, um, this asymptotic solution and the numerical solution. So here's numerical solutions, the, the smooth curves, um, the two dashed curves correspond to the two different species, and those vertical lines actually are the prediction of, of, that, of, a, of that approximate solution um, <clears throat> I just showed you a moment ago, this, 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 uh, this expression up on top here. And you can see, especially the further you go into the crystal, that, that, this, that the approximate solution is actually very accurate. Um, <clears throat> and in a sense, what's really happening here is that the... What's really happening with this term here, you see this contains the etching rates and the fractions of the different species. These, these etching rates are really... They're, 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 um, they're being added up like resistors in, in, in parallel, like ele electrical resistors in parallel. Now, the interesting thing about this, of course, is, well, this discus came from a, um, a differential um, equation model, which you sort of write down in terms of the number of exposed sites, and you, you go off and solve this model, and you come up with this approximate solution. But there's actually a much easier way of getting the same basic solution. Um, well, this is just another... What this actually is, this is a numerical solutions of the problem in the case where one of the... Um, where one of the etching rates is zero. That is, I've got two types of molecules in my lattice here, but one of them is not etched at all by the, by the single acid that I'm applying. So what you would expect this to do is to evolve to a steady state. Eventually you get to a point where there are only molecules that aren't etched. They're the only exposed molecules and the whole process comes to an end. And that's what happens here. You, just, you, you arrive at the steady state in the end. And this presumably is what, happening, what happens whenever you put sulfuric acid in a glass container. You etch away some of the molecules until you get to this, the only type of, of, of molecule, which is silic in this case, which is, which is not etched by the acid. Um, now, we also made an attempt to... Well, because, because the basic numerical uh, solutions tell you that you've apparently got this front, which is moving at, at, at some constant, well, more or less, um, this average rate, if you like, and the front is simultaneously diffusion, the natural thing to do is to try and write down a continuum model. Okay? And we did try and write down an infection diffusion model, but it's, in fact it's stalled. It, it just it wouldn't work for some reason. It's, it's, it's one of these problems that's lying around that needs to be looked at again. Um, but it did occur to me afterwards that this result, the basic result, the, the average etching rate, you must be able to obtain this in a much simpler way, and of course you can. I mean, you can just think in terms of having a column of molecules. You've got a column of molecules, you're etching into this column of molecules. They're of different types, you know what the fraction of each type of molecule is. So, obviously you can work out, on average, how long it takes to etch down into, into, that, in, into that column of molecules. And of course, when you do that, when you, just write, when you write down that simple sum, you actually come up with exactly the same etching rate as we came, as, as, as popped out of that analysis using the, using the differential equation. So I suspect there's still, I'm going to stop now actually, I suspect there's still a bit of work to be done in this problem. You can look at it purely from, from, from a, a stochastic point of view. Um, 
but it's work actually that, that has not been completed as I speak to here. So I'll just move on to this last overhead here and conclude. Um, well, I suppose one basic message I would have is that I believe these real problems, these industrial problems, almost invariably lead to, 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 to nice science. I mean, that's really what, what our group is interested in, trying to do good science. In one sense, I might say, I'd have to be careful saying it, but I might say that the mathematics is often secondary to the science. We'd rather solve a scientific problem than do some nice mathematics. But not everybody would agree with that, perhaps, in my group. Um, <coughs> um, and I don't know if I'm going to bother saying anything else. I mean, the basic philosophy, actually, I had a paper there in Siam Review, which is my basic philosophy of mathematical modeling, if you, if you want to have a look at it. But I think I'll just, I'll just stop there. All right? I wonder when people come to you with a problem, do they know what they want, or is it easy for you to find out what they it's, that's probably one of the big difficulties, actually, getting the, getting the right question. I mean, the reality is it's, it's the formulation of the problem is, the, is often the hardest bit, and that involves finding what the correct question is. So they sort of come, come along, and this doesn't quite work, and if we do this, that goes wrong, and you actually gradually have to tease it out. But it's, yeah, it, it doesn't happen like that. It does not happen in, in, overnight. You know? I mean, what we often do now is we bring an industrial visitor to the group for a day, and talk to them during the course of the day and uh, investigate various avenues. But you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's actually a very difficult part of the process. Um, what we find actually in practice in Ireland is that <coughs> in trying to, um, trying, to, trying to find a decent problem from an industrial partner, is, it's very dependent actually on finding the right type of person. It's, it's, it's just a matter of luck actually. If you come across, we come across an engineer in, I don't know, in analog devices who happens to be interested in mathematics um, and, and sort of understands our philosophy and is willing to push it on a little bit further, because often these things are very slow at the beginning, you know, but he's willing to give it a little bit of time. <laughs> on, that's usually the circumstances in which we end up developing a long-term relationship with anybody. But the, that first contact is pretty critical, actually, because most industries want answers today or yesterday, and they're just not interested in, in longer-term research unless, as I say, you get a sympathetic type of person. fantastic problem, you know, with changes of phase and flow going on that nobody had the faintest idea. It was they had all this sort of experimental data and they had kind of pictures of what's going on, but they had no idea of the fundamental mechanisms. Um, you know, it's surprising that that etching uh, model is, you know, there, there's nothing on this in the literature. People haven't, not, haven't, haven't come across this phenomenon, which has now been published actually, and people haven't developed models of this type, and there's, you know, there's lots more work to be done there, that's just scratching at the surface. I mean, I would say in general, if you, if you get your teeth into a real industrial problem, you know, you could spend the rest of your life probably working, and there's always so, so much more underneath the surface once you get at it.
I mean, we do tend in the study groups to tend to pick out one aspect of it at which we, we think we can make progress. But, you know, there's usually several TSAs, if you like, if you want to think of it in terms of PhD students, in each problem, at the very least. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's, it's not exactly the sort of thing you do, but at the same time, you do have industrial contacts. Thanks, uh, Steve, one more time, and, and it's around for the afternoon, so we can uh, talk to you.